Uh, Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays at 7.40 Eastern Time for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. It's always good to be with you on this uh, Yom Atzimut postponed. How has your Israel 71 been so far? Uh, the, the first day into it has been fine so far. <laughs> I'll let you know in the next half hour. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that so far, so good, as we celebrate 71 years. And remember, Malcolm, we, and we said this yesterday during the Omat Smoot special, remember when 25 was a big deal, and 35, and 40, and then 50, and and 60, and people came out to parades, and and uh, and parties in a much bigger fashion during significant anniversaries. And now already we are at 71. And before we talk about what happened this past weekend, which obviously is so important, we should mention two things. Number one, 23,741 remembered on Israel Memorial Day this past Wednesday. And I know that you uh, certainly uh, want to make sure to point that out. And number two... Um, we, we've reached a point, and again, this is this is because I uh, one of the reasons it's utmost on my mind is because Wednesday night I had the opportunity to hear Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, God bless him, and yesterday, of course, I had the opportunity to sit with Mayor Weingarten, and uh, we've reached a point where we no longer are just uh, surviving and trying to thrive as a nation. We're really at the next level. We are at a level, I dare say, compared to the time of King David and King Solomon, where nations and countries from around the world are seeking the advice, the resources, the financial assistance, the emergency assistance of the state of Israel. I think if one thinks just over the last 10, 15 years of where Israel has gotten uh, on, the, uh, on the scope of, uh, of dealing with other nations, with other countries, it is simply remarkable. And as you point out all the time, when you're in it, it's hard to realize it. You step back for a minute and consider it. Israel seventy one is even more significant than we think it is. I think it's uh, it's very true. And, and as Israel has become seventy, people begin to take things for granted. And uh, when there are you know periodically conflict situations, so they are get aroused for the moment. Seeing, I mean, seven hundred rockets falling on Israel four Israelis killed, uh, many wounded, $14 million in physical damage to buildings, the psychological damage uh, inestimable, and, you know, then life goes back to normal in Israel. It should, but we should not forget the significance and how it fits into the global scene. There are now 9 million Israelis, 75% of them Jewish, and the birth rate continues to be uh, very strong in the Jewish sector including the non-Haredi Jewish sector. And the, as you said, the importance of Israel every year grows. And in part, we have, a, uh, because of the administration's very strong support, uh, what we saw at the moving the embassy and the Golan decision and so many other things, but also it's moved towards water independence, energy independence, the fact that, that the Israelis are the 11th happiest people in the world, who would have thunk that ever? Uh, <laughs> he said any poll would show it. They are happy, and they, they have the healthiest diet. They have one of the longest life expectancies. You take any measure, virtually, uh, economic development, um, tens and hundreds of thousands of people learning in Israel. It, it's really remarkable on every front, and and I guess it's human nature, but we take for granted as long as everything goes along and, and is quiet. 
and we don't take into account what this little country, you think about how small it is, what it's been able to accomplish and what it means that you saw the Saudis last week are coming out in support of Israel against the Palestinians. Yep, unbelievable. Who Things that nobody would have thought of, yet we... And I fear, by the way, for granted too, too too often. And I fear that the next generation, the one after that, will not remember the the beginnings and the struggles, and you know what it took to get here, uh, to get to this point. And I think it's a case in point. And you know, I I I said before you came on the air that I would not put you. I, I think it's unfair of me to put you on the spot when it comes to certain situations. But I think there's one little thing I could ask you. Uh, I don't know if you heard or didn't hear, but it, 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 that's not really the relevant point I'm going to bring up. But there was a uh, an episode, someone uh, flew an Israeli flag on Yom Atzmud in Lakewood, New Jersey, and, and the kosher's agency of that restaurant uh, stepped in and uh, advised that because it is so close to a yeshiva, they, should, you know, they shouldn't put it up, and they're going to take away their kosher's supervision. We're trying to get to the bottom of the story, and obviously I'm going down this week to you know buy lunch and dinner for everybody. But that's not the point. The point is, I said, that the grandfathers and great-grandfathers of those rabbis in Lakewood or other areas that completely remain silent on this issue, because after all, you know, this is where we need rabbinic leadership. This is where we need someone to get up and say, you know, stop the craziness and just let people, you know, express themselves the way they want when it comes to their, to, to their Judaism and nationalism. Would you agree, is it fair to me to say, and this is the only question I'll ask you about this episode, would you agree and is it fair for me to say that the grandfathers and great-grandfathers of those rabbis who remained silent on these issues likely celebrated with tears in their eyes on that Erev Shabbat when the state of Israel declared its independence? It's not only likely, it's certain. And the, uh, I mean, you look at the Panovich Yeshiva, it still has the the flag flying over it because the Panovich Rebbe insisted on it and recognized the importance and it's, not a political statement. It is uh, it is a reaffirmation at a time when Israeli flags are being torn down and Israel is being assaulted is a way to assault Jews all over the world. It's a time when when uh, an action like this has to be condemned in the roundest terms. It's not a violation. It's not an insult to anybody. It's an affirmation and and the. Um, you know the, the the setting in the world today, it's so overwhelming. The anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, anti-Israelism. They don't make a distinction. They make they use these as tools against the Jewish people, and these are symbols of the Jewish people. And the, to 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 not understand at this moment in time, I mean, there isn't a, a morning where where I don't wake up to to half a dozen complaints about assaults against Jews. And uh, this morning, no, no difference. I mean, it's every day, some place in the world, but particularly now in the United States, where we have uh, the, the manifestations that we have. Israel is the center of Jewish life. It, it will increasingly be the majority of Jewish, the Jewish people. It is the, the place to which we turn when Jews are in danger anywhere in the world. And they know that there is now a Jewish state. It's not because the world changed since the 1930s. It's because you have an Israeli army and air force and navy that will make the difference, God forbid, when Jews are in danger, and has made the difference. You know, uh, first of all, thank you, thank you for what you just said—a big, big thank you. Uh, you know, Rabbi Leave, and you—you you know this probably better than most Jews, frankly. 
Rabbi Liebteig said to us the other night, and for me, it was great Musser. I don't think he meant it as Musser. He said there are three types of Jews who care. You know, obviously, there's a segment of our community, unfortunately, you know, that, that the future of the Jewish people is not a great concern. But there's three groups of people that care. Religious Jews, meaning those who, you know, who are at the extreme, not a criticism when it comes to prayer and, uh, and Torah study, not at all a criticism. Nationalistic Jews, he cited Datilu, me people, you know, et cetera, et cetera, those who who, you know, who take pride in the flag flying, etc., and ethical Jews who, you know, utilize their, their you know, Jewish roots to support ethical causes and hopefully, you know, uh, work toward Jews behaving ethically toward other Jews and, of course, to non-Jews as well. And uh, he said to us, when those three groups learn to get along and to progress together, that is when we will be able to thrive as a Jewish nation, and I took that to heart, and I and I and I do acknowledge, and I'm the first one to acknowledge that sometimes I really, you know, have tremendous ire toward those in certain categories who behave a certain way, as people heard this morning when I told the Lakewood story. But you know this better than anybody else. If we can appreciate the passion that all three groups have, and work with everybody, and acknowledge that yes, that is a legitimate manner of serving God and the Jewish people, and let's move forward together, we would be much better off. We're always better off when Jews can come together and demonstrate achdut, even where there are differences. That's you don't need unity if there are no differences. Everybody agrees and believes the thing and acts the same way. Then, by definition, you have unity or homogeneity. Unity is not homogeneity. It's not conformity. Unity means that we're able to look at the differences and accept them and deal with them. It doesn't mean that you compromise on principle and certainly on halacha. It means that you recognize that we are one people and that we have our differences within. We try to educate, we reach out. But the the idea that, that today we can afford the kind of divisions and you see young Jews on campuses joining the anti-Israel and sometimes even uh, worse uh, expressions, that should be a wake-up call to all of us. We need everyone. We're too few and too small to to write off segments of of the Jewish people. And what about those few Jewish students who stand at tables in their at their college campuses, describing to people what Israel's really like and defending the cause and being there to explain in a very respectful and careful manner what Israel is really like? You have to admit those students are heroic because they are taking a position that's not very popular on college campuses. Increasingly more and more heroic in the course of this week where you saw in Williams College that the students who wanted to organize a pro-Israel group were were denied permission, were denied recognition by the university, that you have pro-Israel faculty not Jewish who who have expressed themselves, like Professor Hill at uh, DePaul University, who who's a Jamaican-born American, 23 years a professor of philosophy, and, and is being threatened, the president of Fitzer College, because he refused to break ties with Israel. Um, the, the president of Cornell courageously standing up, and we've seen it uh, across the country. But the other side of, of literally physical assaults against Jews uh, and Jewish students even if they're not um, uh, manning a table in support of Israel, wearing a yarmulke is enough. Look at the assaults on, on people in Brooklyn. Look at the uh, and this is happening across the country, not in in as great a number and frequency as in Brooklyn. And the more visible Jews are, the more they are are perhaps a target. But wearing a yarmulke on a campus is enough reason. And and wearing a, a mug and David or or some other uh, symbol. 
and increasingly students are refraining from doing so because of, of uh, the fear that's instilled in them uh, by the events that, that are happening. And most people don't bother to read what, what uh, how sharp the growth is. You know, in New York City, we've had uh, almost as many incidents as uh, a big part of last year, and 57% of hate crimes are against Jews. The the um, and nationally, the the statistics are also uh, growing. And you saw uh, a Holocaust memorial uh, service interrupted or program interrupted uh, by 12 guys marching with with swastikas and and neo-Nazi uniforms, and and the same thing that's in the U.S. Let alone in Germany, let alone in other countries, uh, where we become accustomed to these happenings, we're, we're not used to it being here yet. Right. And even the world's reaction to the fact that that innocent civilians came under 700 rockets—a clear violation of international law across an international boundary—they portray it as if Israel is still the quote occupier when there's not a single Israeli soldier inside Gaza. That Israel demonstrated such incredible restraint, still giving warnings before they drop on, still alerting, and and uh, that uh, in hundreds and hundreds of raids, you had such a limited number of casualties. Um, and unfortunately, the, the rockets uh, put used the, the terrorists used the people there as human shields, which is another war crime. Uh, and yet, the outcry and the cartoons that we've seen and the other uh, expressions—the fact that of the Democratic candidates, only three, I think, have come out with statements recognizing even just Israel's right to defend itself, let alone uh, stronger. A, a statement. Many members of Congress from both sides of the aisle did. Democrats and Republicans. The administration certainly did. Um, the Arab countries, many of them did. Even the EU came out about Israel's right to defend itself. But if 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 that becomes a difficult statement for people at a time like this, like like we experienced last week, it tells you that we have a fundamental problem, and it 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 goes beyond Israel, it's, it's really about anti-Semitism guised as, quote, anti-Zionism or anti-Israelism, but Jew hatred is becoming the commonplace. No question about it. And by the way, on the protest issue, I'm, I'm still much more worried about the college campus than the 12 white supremacists, but I certainly agree with you that they're both horrible and they both must be stopped. Uh, that's for sure. And, uh, and, and this, on this last point you just made, this, the, the beloved... Democratic Party of the Jewish people, and as you just indicated, a minority, a significant minority, even reacted in terms of the presidential candidates from that party, reacted to what happened uh, to our Israeli brethren this past weekend. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course in the beloved NSN app. We are in the midst of our spring fundraiser, as we do every year. We are listener-supported, as we indicate every single day. Uh, those of you who've returned uh, the envelopes that we sent to you, we say thank you, thank you. Those of you who've gone to fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org to support us during 2019, we say thank you, thank you, and please encourage those around you to do the same. All right, I mean, you've uh, you've told us a lot already about this past weekend, but let's just go through a couple of things. Uh, we know four people were killed, and it was the worst um, a barrage of rockets since the war of 2014. What lessons, if any... Did we learn, because I don't know if, if we could say anything conclusive about it, and, and you could give us much better insight. What lessons, if any, did we learn about Iron Dome this past weekend? 
I think there are many. For for one thing, you know, in one hour there were 117 rockets fired at Ashdod in, a, in an attempt to overwhelm Iron Dome. Only one missile made it past the air defense system. Uh, the Iron Dome radar detected every launch and was able then to give warnings of an incoming missile, and so sirens could be sounded. As you know, you don't have a lot of time. You have half a minute or, or even less sometimes to get to a shelter, but having that early warning and having that time can can save a, a lot of lives. Uh, unfortunately, you know, one of the people killed was driving on a road and a, a rocket uh, that managed to get through and was supposed to land in an open area. The vast majority of the rockets uh, did that. Ninety of them hit inside Gaza itself. Oh, wow. And the woman and the, her, the baby that were killed supposedly by Israel admits itself to Palestinian Islamic Jihad, admits in a public in, in statements that they were the ones who carried out the, 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 it was one of their missiles that killed them, because they're using a new missile that is shorter, but with a heavier warload, but uh, payload, but they weren't able to get many of them over the fence into Israel, so they landed inside Gaza, and they offered compensation to the family of the woman, and yet the media quickly jumped and blamed Israel for it. Each time Iron Dome is fired, it cost $80,000. And when you talk about David Sling being involved, you, you, the, the cost goes up to $2 million. And the, so the, uh, when you know that there are, Pidge has about 8,000 missiles, mostly short and medium range, maybe a couple hundred or long range, and Hamas has uh, several thousand, uh, hundreds of rockets that have a 100-kilometer range, which is... 60-some miles, 62 miles, um, and, you know, their, their rockets cost virtually nothing to produce. Most of them don't have guidance systems, which is why they, they don't land uh, in, more in urban areas, but in open areas. They still may do damage. They still may set a fire. They still can hit a house. Uh, $14 million in damage to houses and to cars. Wow. Uh, and that, you know, physical damage, and that's just in the claims that have been made uh uh, so far. So the lesson is that Iron Dome works. The hope is that there will be a, another way developed. Uh, I know that there is an American company working on radar laser uh, responses, which would cost a, a small fraction of what Iron Dome costs. And um, Israel is, is now in discussions with that company to, to advance its uh, the production of, the, of this, this kind of uh, air defense system. Uh, and, um, you know, people, again, do not talk about what Israel was responded to, how it started, which was the shooting at Israeli soldiers in an attempt to hit, we believe, the commander of the southern Gaza division, and that the um, and Israel responded. They escalated it, whether they were waiting for the opportunity before Eurovision, before Yom Atzmut, before uh, Ramadan. They did not want this fighting to go into the month of Ramadan, which began on, on Rosh Chodesh on Sunday night. Um, and the, the, um, uh, the situation, they escalated it constantly, using civilians as shields, putting launchers, as you could see on the Internet, inside a mosque. You can see the launcher in the balcony of the mosque and using it to store weapons. They hit the homes of 
of uh, many of the leaders, uh, especially those that had weapons stashed there. You can see the explosions, but they still, again, gave warning in advance to, to avoid civilian casualties and to, to uh, the knock on the roof and other means that they have leafleting to say that the, what a, a target uh, was going to be. Uh, still, they hit for the first time again some targeted assassinations of uh, of terrorist leaders and some of the guys who were in charge of the of launching the missiles. Um, but the casualty numbers speak for themselves that they are so limited. You mentioned Ramadan. Uh, just take us for a minute through the strategy of the enemy for a second because, I mean, this is, again, the largest barrage in five years, et cetera, et cetera, and so many of us are familiar with the news from that last weekend. But, I mean, if, if, if let's say, I, I, first of all, the whole Ramadan argument is, is so absurd. You know, we're, we're worried about the holy, the holy month for people who are, you know, a, attacking another country. Just, the whole thing is crazy. But anyway... Uh, without getting into that for a moment, is that is that what the timing is all about? Is, is that is that the main reason why they chose last weekend because they knew that Israel facing world criticism would not be able to take this past Sunday night? No, I think the, the, uh, that they wanted to end as they went into Ramadan, because it's a very tense, you know, people fast all day. It's a, it will be a difficult time to carry out, to continue to carry out their assaults. Um, but and so I was only talking about the termination point of wanting to end it. Right, but I'm asking. Before, but but the begin the timing of it um, was a number, there are a number of factors that go into it. One is, what does Iran want? Remember that Iran is still pulling the strings on this, and if they want to divert attention, if they wanted to create some people believe that they wanted to draw Israel into Gaza, uh, and, and they wanted a ground invasion, tying up the troops, and they could have had a freer hand in Syria, where they obviously have things they want to do, and they're still trying to attack, get near the Golan, and if they saw that Israel if they could divert Israel's attention away from there and its resources, then they felt they might have a freer hand. And we can talk about some of the developments there that got little attention this week, but are obviously of, of uh, great importance. They, they did want to hit Eurovision. They talk about it all the time. And, you know, we have more and more evidence of how extensive the campaign on Eurovision was involving official agencies that have been created by the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Campaign for Academic and cultural boycott of Israel, which is based in Ramallah, and the PACBI and others are part of the BNC. I won't go into all of the acronyms and what, what these things mean, but they, they use different schemes, deceptive methods, including bots and trolls and fake accounts, where they were able to manufacture a, a fake response as protests against uh, Eurovision and did it in many countries from Europe to Egypt, to Indonesia, right. uh, uh, all over. But, but, um, so understand that there's a lot of things that go into the Hezbollah that we may I'm, not see. But, but I'm at, them, but, but, why would they do it for Eurovision? Right. Because they want to hurt Israel and they thought if they could get it canceled, that it would be a victory. Second, you have the competition between Pigeon and uh, Hamas, and mostly you have the disaffection of the people. They're angry. They're angry about the economic conditions, that they haven't gotten paid, that the money was uh, cut off. It's now been restored by uh, gutters giving $48 million, and um, uh, other monies will be, be forthcoming, that Israel restricted the fishing um, 
distance because of, uh, of some of the attacks that were taking place that has now been restored as well. But I'm asking this question from the other angle. If there was no Ramadan, would Israel have acted more strongly? And in the middle of this week, would they have, in fact, intensified the attack on Gaza? If not for the Islamic holiday to worry about, would Israel have advanced further and retaliated much more strongly than compared to what they did? No, I don't think that Israel's schedule was dictated by uh, Ramadan. Obviously, they're sensitive to the fact that this is the week. But it, I was talking about the other side, right. was the one that was sensitive uh, to Ramadan. Look, Israel has to weigh very carefully. People kept saying, why don't they just bring in tanks? Why don't they bring in soldiers? Because, you know, you're putting young people at risk. And the question is, what is the what will the long-term payoff be? They would like to draw in uh, soldiers into into Gaza. They're prepared for them. They have things booby trapped. They have taken steps. And while Israel has the strength to do, if they want to take it back, they could, or if they want to, but it'd be at a at a great cost. So it's it's it isn't so easy to do what people, the armchair generals, you know, sit back and dictate what uh, what outcomes they think that or or strategies they think uh, should be taken. Sometimes there may be mistakes mistakes made, but it is a far more complex situation. And you see that they don't care what you bomb. They don't care if you, you know, bring economic life to a standstill. It's almost there anyway. And the PA has cut off the funding to them. The PA is the one that, that was demanding restrictions on, on assistance going in. Israel continued to provide it. So the the decision regarding Ramadan was not Israel's. Did you see that? I know we're not supposed to talk about the New York Times, but give me this break for a second. Did, did you see the David Halfinger article about why Israel and Gaza keep fighting? Yeah, well, why can't we talk about the New York Times? It's terrible and people shouldn't buy it. <laughs> exactly why I'm supposed to avoid talking about it. But nonetheless, did you th- if you saw that article, did you think that analysis was ridiculous in terms of why it's it's to the benefit of Benjamin Netanyahu to keep going through these, you know, uh, these fighting against the enemy exercises? Anybody who thinks the prime minister of Israel wants to see the demonstrations outside their homes from the families of, of uh, the, those who have perished or were wounded. If he thinks that anybody, any prime minister of Israel, as Rabin once said in the most moving remarks uh, that I ever heard from a prime minister and had everybody, including himself, in tears when he talked about what it's like to meet the families and, and uh, have to go out in the morning and see them standing outside even if it's not a protest against him, but a demonstration of solidarity for the victims. When you look at the 23,000 who gave their lives to remind us of the cost of the Jewish state, and Yom HaShoah, as somebody pointed out, which reminds us of the cost of not having a Jewish state, right. that the, the no prime minister will take lightly the decision. And I don't think, ultimately, it's a political decision. I think it's a complex uh, of factors that they have to take into account if an invasion is necessary, they would do it. They, do they have the capacity to do it? Yes. Did they order up tanks? Yes. Did they want to go in? No, because they know that, that going into Gaza is is uh, will be very costly, and the um, and and the it's very easy to make suggestions when you're not the one who has to sign the order. So if we're going to uh, write letters to the Times about syndicated political cartoons, we should write letters about David Halfinger as well. Yes, it was protested in the meeting this week uh, with um, 
the leaders, but it's not just the one instance. It's a constant. It's not right. just. A, it's not editorial page alone. It's the repertorial pages, which completely distort and misrepresent. And when they publish stories, not just in the Times, uh, like the one about the woman being killed, you you don't see people writing apologies and saying, "Well, we're sorry, Israel. We didn't mean to malign you and accuse you of killing a woman and her baby." And you know, th- th- there's never the kind of um, uh, rectification afterwards. And while some papers, like the cartoon issue, obviously got so much attention, and, and but they published another cartoon a couple of days later that was also offensive. So it didn't get that deep into the psyche of people that uh, that, it, that would stop. And I don't think that we're going to see it stop. They'll be more careful perhaps for, for a while, but the coverage itself remains so distorted. If you ask people, as we have, they believe that Israel is still the occupying power of Gaza. Uh, do you think the prime minister's indictment hearing is going to be delayed? I know that he put in that his lawyers put in that request to the attorney general. It's scheduled right now for July the tenth. Yeah, I, that's an internal decision that will be made there. There's a lot of pressure both ways, you know, to get it going. And others are saying you should not doing this to a sitting prime minister like the president can't be indicted according to many legal interpretations. So. Um, it's it is possible, but just uh, we're postponing the inevitable that at some point they will they will have to begin the trials. I think it's a terrible diversion from uh, a lot of the issues that Israel has to con- confront today, uh, both the ones that that we talked about, and you know we see the the challenges here. The uh, Rashida Tlaib, the congresswoman, is now going to take a congressional junket to the to the occupied territories. And supposedly the Humpty Dumpty Foundation is providing money, and there are people in there who I think, um, I hope, will will rise up against this this decision if it is true. Um, but the the, um, uh, the prime minister being so his attention being diverted to to the legal issues, nobody's saying he should be above the law, and I don't think I think ultimately he has to be held to account for whatever the charges are. Um, but right now Israel needs to focus on, on a situation in Jordan, which is getting worse and worse. They admitted, acknowledged what I spoke about a week ago or so about the plot on King Abdullah. Right. And um, the army came out in support of him, but we know there are other elements that didn't. There are a lot of people getting fired. Uh, the economic conditions are very difficult, and their concern is that at the end of Ramadan, next to Rosh we will see again the demonstrations, which are being directed against the king, which is very unusual, will will resume. And we have uh, difficult situations in many of the Arab countries around Israel, and the, the danger of uh, you know another domino effect, um, uh, like the, quote, Arab Spring, which was not a sp- Arab Spring at all. Uh, we see the austerity in in uh, Jordan, so he has lots of problems to be looking at, especially with Iran moving uh, ballistic missiles by boat into the Persian Gulf. That the threats of an action against American interests or America's allies, which certainly have to include uh, Israel, um, and as they become perhaps more desperate with the economic condition, the sanctions being ratcheted up again against metal imports and, and related uh, items, and to see the the, um, uh, the number of barrels that they're exporting drop, even though it won't go to zero, and they still found all sorts of 
end runs against, around some of the sanctions by transferring them from one boat to another and turning off the transponders so nobody can trace where the boats are. But still, the drop is, is precipitous, and, and the economic conditions there are uh, have dropped greatly. They replaced the head of the IRGC. There are other things that are taking place that uh, I think – uh, indicate that the internal situation is is very unstable, and for that they may strike out. So the prime minister has to look at all these circumstances and situations, and sustaining Israel's economic growth, and looking at the at the defense situation, north, south, east, and west. <laughs> it, you know, people don't realize it's a little country. It has limited resources. It's not, you know, great power. Iran has ten times the population of Israel. And um, you know, with with a strong military and with uh, and no limits in terms of using the internet, using uh, sabotage, cyber warfare, all these things that are are used today, and it's against the United States as well, and it's against the Europeans that we see um, uh, the expansion of these things, which can affect the economy and can have a devastating impact. Have they or any of their proxies actually carried out? Any targeted attacks against U.S. forces or U.S. presence in the Middle East at this point? Or they've they... harassed them, and uh, certainly during the last year, the Obama administration a lot, and then uh, it, the, uh, uh, the Trump administration put down the markers pretty strongly, and it it is less so. But they have they run havoc with these fast uh, boats that they run around our aircraft carriers. They send pictures of the bottom of an aircraft carrier because they have these little submarines also in the Gulf. So there have been acts of of uh, harassment and um, challenges. But, no, they did not uh, carry out an all-out attack. But they are fighting our troops in, in, in Yemen and in Iraq, and they're responsible for some of the attacks in the past against uh, our troops there. We have 5,600 troops in Iraq and 2,000 still in Syria, and we're supporting the um, the efforts in Yemen of led by Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And I think I saw this in, um, I, I mean, it was in the Daily Alert. I just don't know if it was, the, I think it was the Wall Street Journal. I'm not sure. But basically Iran is telling Europe, because of the JCPOA, the uh, Iran nuclear deal, um, uh, Iran is saying that it is monitoring European actions over the next 60 days, and it's time for European countries to, quote, fulfill their commitments, I assume they mean on behalf of Iran. Uh, what position of strength are they in against the EU or European countries to speak the way they are? Well, the European countries, first of all, they, some of them still do a lot of business with um, with Iran in contradiction to the um, um, sanctions, although many European companies, in fact, most big European companies have pulled out of Iran, and the Iranians are angry at the Europeans because they said they would create an alternative system, including to SWIFT, you know, the banking, right. the money transfers in the banks, et cetera, which they have not been able to do. And the, uh, they've not countered now the latest round, the, the, the sanctions, especially the latest round, which is trying to bring to zero the exports. It won't, but it will have further damaging effect with countries um, uh, dropping out. They, uh, they can threaten the European countries with, uh, with uh, violence within their countries, that they can instigate stuff. They, they certainly have them intimidated uh, because there's no – a rational reason why the uh, Europeans um, want to see the continuation. The, J- the Iranians this week announced that they're going to enrich more uranium. They're not going to ex- uh, export 
the uh, spent uranium that was used in for medical isotopes and other things that they are supposed to send out to surplus and they say they're not going to do that and nor the heavy water and they're telling that in the end of the 60 days they're going to resume production they're threatening them all the time uh the the europeans are still somehow wed to the jcpoa as it is um even those who supported it many of them are now calling for it to be rewritten and revised the administration has offered talks to the iranians iranians uh, claim that they are re- rejecting it. I believe that they really do want to have um, negotiations. Where they're trying to find a face-saving way. You see Zarif and others making um, uh, making statements, but but ultimately saying we're not going to quit the JCPOA, even though others in the in the Iranian hierarchy have uh, have, have claimed that they would. So they're they're. They're keeping their low enriched uranium. We believe that they're opening or reopening some of the facilities that they claimed they destroyed and did not destroy. What Bolton said and in moving announcing the move of the Lincoln group, the carrier group, to the Persian Gulf, that this is a, a response to uh, troubling and escalatory indications and warnings. There's reports that Israel gave them warnings of a planned Iranian action, and so did others in U.S. intelligence itself seems to feel that there would be an attack on the U.S. or Gulf allies or someone else. Um, it's not clear what it was. I don't know what, what the specific target would have been. We know what they're doing in Yemen and elsewhere. So um, this is a very strong warning, most likely to keep the Straits of Hormuz open and, and prevent any effort on their part to narrow it or to close it, which I don't believe that they would they would really go that far. Uh, t- a couple of quick things. Is this story true that uh, Jabril Rajoub was, was flown to Tel Aviv for emergency surgery at the same time he uh, was still stepping up from his hospital room the effort to keep the Spanish uh, soccer team out of Israel? Yeah, I didn't see that he was flown in, but it's very likely it's certainly true that they send Hamas leadership and others send their, their families to be treated in Israel. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And finally, there's never been, and, uh, you know, excuse my ignorance, the Muslim Brotherhood has never been designated by the U.S. as a terrorist group? No, this is a foreign terrorist organization. Um, This would impose additional sanctions against the Muslim Brotherhood. Hmm. Uh, As you know, some European countries have already have done it. There is um, a reluctance because they're saying that this is really a network of organizations, so you don't issue a blanket. you got to go after the components. Um, but we have for too long tolerated. Now, some people believe that CC, when he was here, asked the United States to do it. There are some who say that they should be designated as a hate organization and, and come under the Hate Crimes Acts for what they're doing here in the country. And again, we haven't even had a chance to talk about the exponential growth of, of these activities, uh, hostile activities against uh, Israel, against Jews, and on, especially on campus and in communities, and the role that these organizations play in fomenting it, including the BDS movement uh, it, itself. So, um, and uh, this, the, the exposure of the, by the way, of the Labor Party, 15,000 documents, screenshots of anti-Semitic stuff that was collected over the last two years, um, for those who, who question whether the how serious this this is, so the move now is to to designate. I'm not sure that it will actually happen in the fulsome way that we would like, but but perhaps some limited action uh, against them. Amazing. 
Uh, I thank you. We will reconvene next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks for joining us. Have a great Shabbos, and uh, wish everybody a, a, a wonderful Shabbos. And to keep in mind the importance of Israel and talk about it with your families and uh, over this, these coming days. Well said. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.